HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Explore Ithaca's waterfalls, orchards, and craft beverage scene. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com. Well, hello. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, July 6, 2022. We are coming to you from our studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn, in the backyard of Roberta's Restaurant. This is our 327th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a culinary expert, food writer, cookbook author, and wonderful TV personality and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start with my PR tip. Then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to cook with kids. Yes, get them in the kitchen while they're young. Not only can cooking serve as a fun, practical, and delicious activity, but it can be educational, teaching skills like math, reading, and science, and about healthful eating, too. Plus, it can build confidence and be great family time, a bonding experience, as you share the joys of creating a beautiful meal together. So get cooking. The kitchen is the place to be. That's my tip today. Okay, I am thrilled to have my guest here with me in the studio. It is Gail Simmons. She is a trained culinary expert, food writer, cookbook author, and TV personality. Gail has been a permanent judge on Bravo's Emmy and James Beard award-winning series, Top Chef, since the show's inception in 2006, and it's now in its 19th season. She is the co-host of the new daily syndicated series, The Good Dish, and most recently was the host of Top Chef Amateurs, as well as Iron Chef Canada. From 2004 to 2019, she served as 
Special Projects Director of Food at, at Food and Wine. And she is the author of two books, Talking With My Mouthful, My Life as a Professional Eater, and Bringing It Home, Favorite Recipes from a Life of Adventurous Eating. And that's the short bio. Hello, Gail. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's great to see you, Sherry. It's great to see you too and be in person yes, here. live and in person. Yes, yes. Very special. Um, so I've known you a long mm-hmm. time, but I don't, and I actually, I read, I read your, I read your book when it came Thank out. You. Thank and so, you. um, I, I remember identifying a bit with, with, um, I don't know, your your philosophy about food or your, not your path exactly, but kind of, I had similarities with my path and yours in, sure. in, in, I guess, our own ways. But why don't you take us back a bit to what led you into the culinary world and going to cooking school? Sure. Um, first of all, I liked your pro PR tip, by the way. Um, also, uh, definitely resonates in my house, getting my kids in the kitchen. I do believe it's the best way to get them to eat a diverse array of food. Um, and take ownership of it and be curious. Well, um, side note, inspired by some of your cooking well, videos you. with your daughter. Yes, thank you very I recently much. watched one with you guys making hummus. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's right. We did that for charity deep in the pandemic. And uh, she she loves getting in the kitchen. But um, And I really credit it for the reason that she's a relatively good eater. I mean, she's still a kid. Yeah. But I do believe the more you cook with them, the more empowering it is for them to make great choices at the table and hopefully in life. So where did I start? A long time ago, as they say, in a galaxy far, far away um, called Canada. I was born and raised (laughs) in Canada, in Toronto, Ontario. Um, I grew up in a house with parents who were really avid travelers and really great you know, curious eaters. My mother was an exceptional cook kind of long before it was in fashion to be one. You know, she was raising us in the 70s and 80s when the microwave was the biggest kitchen appliance. And also at a time when women were really being empowered to get back into the workforce. And my mom worked really hard and always actually worked, but she loved cooking and loved being in the kitchen and found a way to make that her work. So there's a piece of me that has always felt like I could never run or hide from working in the food industry because she did. She she ran a cooking school out of our home from the time I was probably, I don't know, four or five until I was about 10 or 11. And when the school got too big, it was like a school of home cooking for the neighborhood moms and dads. Um, and when it, she did classes, you know, once or twice a week in our kitchen, she actually renovated our kitchen to be like a teaching kitchen so she could stand at the stove and speak out into this big kitchen sitting area and uh, living air space and teach. And when it got too big, she moved to the local uh, middle school to to teach from their home ec rooms and that really was inspiring. I have so many memories of like sneaking downstairs when I was probably supposed to be asleep and there were lots of people in our kitchen gathered around as my mom uh, deboned a fish or showed them how to make scallops or something like that. And it really was a time when a lot of people weren't cooking at home as much and she always was cooking from scratch. I'm not saying she was making fancy food or that she was, you know, um, making elaborate pastry doughs. 
but she was just cooking really fresh food and always, um, you know, with uh, an eye on sort of like the the greater world and their travels. Um, my father was from South Africa, is from South Africa, and so we spent a lot of time in my childhood on airplanes going back to South Africa to visit his family and then to other places. My parents loved to travel and they took me and my two older brothers along for the ride as soon as we were old enough to do so. Um, so we spent time in Costa Rica. I have all these great you know, family trip memories. Costa Rica in the 80s, like before people were really going to Costa Rica right. um, as a ecotourism destination, yeah. you know? Um, and to Israel and to, um, you know, all over obviously the States and, um, you know, kind of everywhere in between. So I think that informed a lot of the way we ate as children. And as I got older, I went to university. I went to McGill University. And when I came home, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I had a great degree. I had a great education. I loved to write. And I had been cooking for myself and my roommates a lot at the end, towards the end of college. And also writing restaurant reviews for my college paper because I thought that would be kind of like cool. And I, I you know, McGill being in Montreal is one of the greatest restaurant cities in the world. I still believe it is the most underrated restaurant city in the world. And... Um, so there was just so much great food to explore, so much diverse, interesting food to explore there. And so I was doing a little like dabbling in food writing, but never thought that was an actual job. Ironically, because my mother, for a lot of my youth when she was running this cooking school, also had a column in the Globe and Mail, which is Canada's biggest newspaper, writing about food, not restaurant reviews, but food. So there was this sort of like... Um, you know, feeling around food and food writing and engagement in the world of food and hospitality my whole life in my house. Um, but when you are 21 and you come home from college without direction and someone says to you, oh, your interests are so much like your mom. You're so much like your mother. That's so awesome. You're going to go into food just like your mother. You like r cry and run out <laughs> of the room and feel like destiny is beyond your control. Um, but that was the... Uh, original sort of way that I got into knowing about the world of food but I wanted to do it differently and I wanted to do it my own way but because I loved to write I ended up graduating from college and I loved magazines just as a medium I was a voracious reader and you know at the time when magazines were still sort of like at the height I had 12 subscriptions to magazines right um, everything from food wine and gourmet to um, you know women's magazines fashion magazines um and so and also one of the magazines i loved the most was a magazine called toronto life which is sort of the new york magazine you know or los angeles magazine the city magazine monthly magazine award-winning excellent magazine that still exists today and i somehow finagled my way into getting an internship there for the summer when I graduated college. And I worked there for four months as an intern and I fact-checked and I did research and eventually I convinced the food critic and the food editor to let me come along with them on restaurant reviews and on their, you know, power lunches around the city and really started discovering Toronto, which is in itself an incredible city uh, to eat in with amazing immigrant communities and a great history of, of great food. Um, and it was there that, I realized like this was my beat, right? This is the stuff I wanted to do. I loved the world of restaurants and food and realized it was this whole universe that I really didn't understand very much of uh, and was really curious about. 
from there, I went to work for a newspaper in Canada. And when I announced to my editor at the newspaper, I was still like an assistant, but I was doing research and I was starting to write little articles and sidebars and, you know, help all the editors. And when I explained to them that I wanted to be a food writer, they sort of laughed and said, that's great, Gail, but like, what do you know about food? You're 20, maybe I was 23 at the time, 22, 23, uh, 22. And they were perfectly right. I loved to eat and I loved to go to restaurants, but that was where it all ended, right? I didn't really know how to cook. I had learned some things from my mother. I certainly was like decent in the kitchen for a 22-year-old, but I had no actual foundation in cooking. And my mom's reputation couldn't, could only take me so far, you know? Right. Um, so I decided to put my money where my mouth was. Literally, I quit the job and moved to New York and enrolled in culinary school. And decided that I was going to make it a full-time thing. And that's Amazing. how I got to New York City. That was 1999. Amazing. Why did you choose, I mean, why did you choose, did you did you have the idea maybe that you wanted to move to New York previously? Or was it just, Yes. Um, okay. I had spent, I, we'd been to New York a lot as children. I mean, I have very vivid memories of putting on my party shoes, you know, my patent leather black Mary Janes as a 10-year-old and riding the elevator to Windows on the World. With my family, I have very vivid memories of, you know, my first shows on Broadway, A Chorus Line, in case anyone's wondering. Um, you know, all the things about New York, we would come, you know, maybe once a year or once every few years. My mom had lived in New York when she was in her 20s. Um, she worked at the UN, actually. She was a guide, uh, a tour guide in the UN in her 20s. Um, in her class of tour guides, the other tour guide that stood out, by the way, from her year of being a tour guide at the UN was Matter Joffrey, who oh. was also a tour guide at the same time as my mom. Wow. Uh, small, amazing <laughs> universe. Anyway, so she had lived in New York. They loved New York. They would visit occasionally. And we came, you know, every couple of years. And the Christmas of my last year of college, I came to New York for a full week with my parents. We borrowed my mom's friend's apartment. And I was here for a week. And it was the first time I'd been here as an adult. You know, I was legal drinking age. And I could go out and discover it with my friends. And a bunch of my friends were also here. And my parents made an entire week's worth of reservations for us. And I remember them like they were yesterday. We ate at Balthazar. It had just opened. We ate at Aquavit when Marcus was the chef. Uh, it has was also really new. We ate at Vong Restaurant. This is a nice list. Right? <laughs> and they changed the way I thought about restaurants. I mean, yeah. they were everything. I, I remember every moment of eating at all of these restaurants. And this was the, that was in 1998. Yeah. So New York always all of a sudden sort of like it clicked in my head. Like now I get why everyone loves New York. These restaurants. Right. There's nothing like it where I was from. All three of them just. And I oh, we ate at Payard. Oh, wow. We just yeah. had such an amazing week. Yeah. And. I just couldn't, my head was like exploding at every meal. And so that was where the seed was planted. But to your point, when I moved here for culinary school, I enrolled in culinary school. It was going to be an eight-month program. And then I, my plan was to go right back to Toronto. I had a boyfriend in Toronto at the time. Uh, and my plan was to go back to Toronto and like be a big fish in a little pond and get that writing, food writing job that I had claimed I'd wanted and go back and take all of this knowledge I was going to um, absorb in New York back to Canada and be able to get, you know, any job I wanted there. And I actually came here and never left. And that was 22 years ago. Over. Almost yeah. 23. 23 yeah. years ago. Yeah. I moved here in 98. I had, after college, 
uh, I went to University of Michigan and afterward I didn't know what I wanted to do and I ended up moving to Chicago and having a love for restaurants mm -hmm. going to a cooking school that right. I would say is similar to where you went yeah. like a smaller school in the city and then um dabbled in a few things or got my some experience at Charlie Trotter's and just sure. like you know it was like I was I was I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and eventually moved to New York and stayed here and then fell into PR and yeah. now and they're doing, doing it now doing podcasting and, and all the above but it's um when you went to cooking school you didn't have the intention of being a chef no never yeah uh, for better or worse, um, I knew, I chose to go to the, what was at the time the Peter Company or Cooking School. Now it's ICE because it was a shorter program than CIA. I didn't want to commit two years and I wanted to be in the city. That was for me the most important thing. And I liked that it was only like at the time an eight month program, uh, full time, but right in the heart of the city. It was on 23rd Street at the time. It was We were the first class in their 23rd Street location or one of the first classes. And that's you know what I my dream was right I would get to spend eight months maybe a year in New York and you had to do an apprenticeship like an externship at the end of the program for a few months so I thought great I'll take a year of my life I'll do eight months at school I'll do like four months as an apprentice in New York and I'll just get like an internship at the gourmet magazine test kitchen and then I'll be set for life like that was the dream uh, and I'll go back home and um I found that when I went to get ready to do that externship, the person in charge of like career services at the school thought that was a terrible idea. He was like, sure, we can try and get you an internship at Gourmet Magazine or Food and Wine in their test kitchen or somewhere else similar in media. But you actually know that you don't know how to cook yet, right? Like I thought, you know, you think you come out of culinary school and you're a chef, quote unquote. But really, you're not even close. You're barely... Um, a commie, you're barely an apprentice. And, you know, it's as if you graduated med school, I always tell people, and we're going to perform heart surgery the next day. Like, no, you need to do yeah. residencies. You need to get actual practical experience. You've done everything once, right? I had made everything once. And that does not a chef yeah. make. So um, he convinced me to go to restaurants and to cook for a little while on the line and to actually get solid culinary experience. And then think about going to one of those magazines um, once I had you know the feeling of what it was like to work in a restaurant to understand the pace and the speed and the urgency to understand uh, the line you know and the language and I did un I did get that I needed to be like fluent in the language if anyone was going to take me seriously because I was still 22 or 23 by now and I understood that everyone who had the jobs I wanted had much, much more experience than me. And so how was I going to be taken seriously if I didn't understand? And I also knew that most food writers had not spent time in kitchens. And I thought, well, maybe this is a way yeah. at a young age to get a leg up and actually do it. So I did. Um, and I cooked in two kitchens um, for a while, uh, obviously longer than that year. And I... Um, and I, I did just that. I By no means did I become what I would ever call a chef. I still hate when people call me Chef Gail because to me that is the leader of a kitchen. It means boss. And I was never the boss. Uh, you know, I made it to the line. I was cooking meat. I was uh, cooking hot food on lines in very big, fancy New York kitchens. And it broke me. 
Uh, but then it built me up again, and it, it definitely gave me the skills and the and the fluency I needed to take yeah. my next steps. I had one experience uh, working at a jazz club um, in Chicago as garmanger, making seven dollars an hour. Oh I yeah, remember. same. And um, I, I was looking over at the guys behind the fire <laughs> doing that stuff. I was like, how am I going to do that? Like, I don't know. It was, um, Oh yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was, I'm so glad I had the experience of working in kitchens, but it's, um, it's pretty much, uh, uh, it's, it's not as, I don't know. I think you got to, as you said, like going to cooking school, um, is, is one thing to get your, I guess, prerequisite, mm-hmm. but, like the hands-on experience and learning how to do it online, it's a different it's a different beast. Absolutely. I mean, that gives you like the foundation. You understand it yeah. in the textbooks. It's like going to college, but does college prepare you for a specific job yeah. or whatever it is? I, you know, I, I feel, you know, culinary school was definitely my graduate degree in ways, but it wasn't, you know, until you yeah. actually go out and practice. Right. Yeah. That's how I, whole other I feel world. the same way. Mm-hmm. So, so... You've done, I mean, we, we have so much you've done. <laughs> well, but after one, one thing at a time. No, it's over so, a very long but let's, I want to talk a little about, you work with Jeffrey Steingarten. Yes, yes, I did, of course. Um, and I have to say, I have this, I think I interviewed for, I did interview for a job with him once. Then it would have been, maybe he only has one job. Uh, I, think I, I, I don't know if it was before or after me, but. I don't, I don't know exactly when it was, but my memory is, and it was probably, I mean, it was probably around the yeah. time that you were, you did get the job and work for him. Um, I just remember being in his apartment and, and see lots of like, uh, cookbooks and on she- like shelves. I remember like his, Florida ap- ceiling. his apartment. And then I remember him making me an espresso. That all tracks. Is this, is this, was this a dream or did that really, that okay. really I don't know. Okay. It, that's very on brand. <laughs> it's very on brand. Okay. But then I didn't get a job working with him, but you did. I did. Uh, to this day, I'm not quite sure why. You know, what did he see in me that was like, yes, I want this fumbling child to come and work for me. But I will say a few things about Jeffrey. I mean, I could, it's a whole book in and of itself, but I owe him everything in that he opened the world of restaurants in New York City to me. Not just restaurants and not just New York City, but both of those things. Chefs, restaurants, food, New York City, the world. I mean, he, he, I worked for him for two years. I started with him in February or January of 2020. I mean, right after the Y2K fiasco of, uh, of New Year's Eve. And then I worked for him all the way until the end of 2021. So all of 2020, I mean, sorry, not 2020, 2000 and 2001, all of it. And, you know, from, from the beginning of 2000 until like, you know, the months after September 11th. And uh, it was like the education of a lifetime. He's an extraordinary human. If you don't know who he is, he was the food red, the food critic at Vogue magazine for 30 plus years, more. Um, he wrote many two, two to th- three award-winning New York Times best-selling cookbook uh, books not cookbooks of his essays from Vogue um, and he really remains I believe one of the greatest like long-form food writers of our time um, so I worked as his research assistant uh, his recipe tester his you know 
Jill of all trades. And I did kind of everything for him. I came right out of working at, so the, the sort of full circle of the story is that when I went to work as an apprentice after culinary school, I ended up at Vong, where I had eaten dinner mm-hmm. in my senior year of college two years before. And I worked on the line at Vong, and I loved that restaurant. It's not open anymore, but it was Jean-Georges Von Grichten's like Thai-inspired three-star. Yeah, I remember it. Beautiful restaurant, and I really learned so much about cooking there and about ingredients, and I interviewed for Jeffrey while I was a line cook there and went to work for him right afterwards. And um, he, you know, he's very rigorous. He has very high expectations of the the people who work for him. He has a long history of young women, like, you know, one after the other. They're always women for a number of reasons because I think he just doesn't want anyone who can beat him up. But also very bright, willful women who he takes under his wings and really teaches us a lot. And more than anything else, the women who came before me and the women after me are still very much in my life. We kind of create this circle of of friendship and support for each other. We're never really working there at the same time, but they are still very much in the picture. And to this day, I mean, I have like lunch plans with them next week. Ah, that's awesome. Um, the ones that live in New York still. And we're still very close. And they are all extraordinary women. We are all doing very different things. Some in the food world, some not anymore. But, you know, Jeffrey taught me a lot, gave me many gifts. But these women are definitely like the biggest take home that I could have ever imagined. And they formed, you know, the sort of my circle uh, in New York when I grew into adulthood living here. Amazing. Mm -hmm. I love that. And then there was all the preposterous things that I did with him. Right. Espresso being one of them, which is why your memory serves. Well, I'm just, I just, I I always question my memory. So I like, I like that, um, I'm. I guess I'm on point with whatever. That no, I mean I did happened. an article with him about espresso. Probably a year into working for him, we we had about 37 espresso machines lined up in the house. We had we learned. I mean I went. Yeah. He goes so deep. He does such like deep dives into every single subject that he researches. Um, you know, from peaches to bluefin tuna to pasteurization laws in America to mortars and pestles in Thailand to espresso. And so I learned, you know, everything there is to know about making the perfect espresso, how to do it, the tamping, the water pressure, um, the quality of the grind, everything. Well, if you ever just want to just get a job as a barista, you know. I could do it. uh, I could do it. Take a little, yeah, I know take all a little time off of yeah. the t- the TV <laughs> yes. and the travel and the, I have, I have a yeah. plan B now. Yeah, yeah. you do. I'm, it's thank God. But he, I mean, amazing. <laughs> like he, you know, you, I learned so much for him, yeah, from him yeah. about all these things uh, that proved useful. Sure. Yeah. So I, we, I'm going to need a few hours of the show. No, with we you. can move along. But, we can move but along. Take us, take us quick, like take us brief, like through well, briefly, quickly, or as, 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 quick as, as, as you can through. I mean, you work with Danielle Balut. I did. So I went from Jeffrey to Danielle. I, okay. I was ready to leave Jeffrey. You can't really work for Jeffrey for more than two years. You just expire like any job. You need to move on. Yeah. He's ready. You're ready because you work so closely together. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do. September 11th, it just happened. And I remember I'm from Canada, so I needed a visa. And that was not a good time in America to be looking for a visa as a junior person. And Jeffrey, I had come to know, I had come to know Danielle through Jeffrey because Jeffrey and Danielle had a really close relationship. And 
Danielle took me on. He was at a point in his restaurants where he was expanding very quickly and needed um, someone else on the team of his like marketing, PR, and events team. Right at that time, he had one woman, an extraordinary woman named Georgette Farkas. But they were, you know, opening three restaurants, writing three books all at once. You know, he was exploding. Uh, it was still when it was a very small executive team. And I had plans to go to that gourmet magazine job, remember? Like I was going to go right. be in media and be a food writer. But, you know, Danielle Ballou offers you a job and you would be stupid to say no. So thank goodness I wasn't too stupid to do so. <laughs> and I accepted the job, um, even though it was like a sharp left from what I had planned on doing in my, you know, five-year plan. Um, and I went to work for him in marketing and I yeah. worked for him for almost three years um, on that core team. I opened restaurants with him and I, I helped him with several books. I did all his events, PR. Yes. It was a totally different side of the industry that I had never known about before because I had lived in this sort of like editorial bubble until then. Yeah. And Georgette is fabulous. She is the most. Still like the my most. big sister. I, I adore her. She's now become my, my yoga buddy. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's, well, she was a ballerina before yeah, she yeah. was in PR and restaurants. And she's like, she's extraordinary. She really is. So then you, you went to Food and Wine. Yes. So from, from Danielle, I came to know the people at Food and Wine. And uh, there was a, a young man at Food and Wine who I'd become friendly with who was in their event and marketing department. He also did a, a bunch of television for the magazine. He was sort of like the brand ambassador when there needed to be a segment on like New York One or Today Show uh, about trends in food or a story from the magazine or a cooking demo. He was the guy who went on TV and did it. And he was at Danielle for an event we were throwing about two and a half years into my work for Danielle. And he came up to me at this event and said, I'm leaving my job. I'm going to open my own restaurant. Would you be interested? I think you'd be great at it. And I had not necessarily planned on leaving Danielle, but here it was, this moment to go work for the magazines that I had kind of moved to New York to set out to work for in the first place. And I had loved Food and Wine, and I was a fan of the brand and fan of the magazine. And I had come to know it so well through Danielle because Danielle Boulou was in the very first class of Food and Wine Best New Chefs in 1988. And yes. so he had this sort of bond with the magazine. And, um, and so I was just like, yes, of course, sure. Yeah, I would do it. I would love to interview for that job. And the interview process took many months, um, but ultimately I got that job and went to work for Food and Wine in at the very end of twenty of two thousand four. Yeah, and I was there until two thousand nineteen in some capacity. And you were, I don't know, selected or or, or given the opportunity to audition. For Top Chef. Right, through Food Wine. Through Food Again, Wine. Again, because, so when I got this job, my job was in the marketing department at first, but within about 10 months, the woman who was running the Food and Wine Classic in Aspen left. She went, she was having twins and she left and decided not to return. So they needed someone to fill that position and I moved into that position and I took over being sort of like the event director um, for, in, for Aspen and simultaneously... Food and Wine got a call from Bravo. This was in 2005, towards the end of 2005, saying, we have this idea for a show, a crazy food competition show, sort of like Project Runway, which had just finished its very first season to much success on Bravo. And they wanted to roll out a similar concept, but in the food space, but they knew nothing about food. And they said, look, we would love if you taught us about food and chefs and the world of discovering young chef talent 
and gave us kind of like you know partnered on the prize with us and you know brought one year one of the winner to aspen and um helped us promote the show and teach us about this industry we will um allow one of your editors to be on our judges panel if we can find one that we like sort of thing like send us a few editors and we'll audition them and so I had been doing these little segments because the guy whose job I had taken had done that and because I had the PR experience and the culinary experience it was a good fit although I had never been in front of the camera before but I had done maybe like I mean until I went to that Top Chef audition I'd probably done like five or six television segments in my life three minute segments about you know, wine bargains or outdoor entertaining for summer, you know. And uh, I went to 30 Rock. They kind of just sent me on this screen test, they called it, and I didn't even know what a screen test was. And, you know, something resonated. And they called about a month later to say, okay, we're going to make this show and we'd love Food Want to be our, our, our partner, our, our media partner, and we'd love Gail to get on a plane to San Francisco and shoot this first season with us. And that was, you know almost 20 seasons ago it's crazy my whole life changed without ever imagining that that would happen I mean it was not my goal and I'm not undermining the significance of it it just was not in my purview television I was in media media to me meant magazines meant writing meant editorial but the world was changing so quickly and at the time we were the only food competition show it's hard to remember a time when there were other food competition shows there was Japanese Iron Chef like the original and that was it I believe. So, you know, they sent me sort of on this lark. I was scared out of my mind, but uh, we did it anyway. Well, I mean, the thing the thing that I think resonates mm-hmm. most with me when I listen to your story is just that you just seized opportunities and you just, and there were layers also. It's like la- everything you've talked about is the layers 100%. and the layers to where you got to where you are today with, you know, and uh, it's and you are incredible on Top Chef. The show is incredible. No, <laughs> depends on the day. But well, so, yeah, no, yeah. No, you thank are you. really. I you it. are such a. I love. I love watching and and your uh, you as a judge and the show is just so well edited and just so well put together. Together, there's I think there's reason it's been successful. Uh, yes. Very successful. Oh, we're very proud. We're very proud. Obviously, and it is not happened by total coincidence. You know, there's this sort of like way you love to be self-deprecating be like we have no idea why it's been so successful but of course we have ideas because we work really hard i yeah. want to swear about that like we work i don't feel am i allowed you to can this it? is yes we work really fucking hard yeah. at top chef and it has not been without its turmoil and its um challenges i mean if you think of the last so we've been on air for 17 years and where we started and where we are, you know, the Instagram, like uh, where it started and where we are now sort yeah, of, yeah. are not um, by coincidence and they're not at all the same place, right? Like we have changed and adapted and we have been in our share of insane, truly unfathomable circumstances, you know, pushing to make this show and to make it the best we can make it. And it has... It's been a wild roller coaster of a ride. If you look back at, you know, I was 29 when I started making the show and we can all do the simple math and I am not anymore, 29. Um, And I have like raised my children on this show along with Tom and Padma and we have been through deaths and, and divorces and 
marriages and celebrations and trauma and pandemics and um, rioting and federal court investigation. I mean, it's just been wild, but it has, thankfully, with our incredible producers and with Bravo, it has yielded something very special, and, and we are very proud of it. And you've gotten dressed up for the red carpet oh, many yeah. times. Oh, yeah. We yeah. certainly have. Yeah. And really, I mean, it's, it's, I, I mean, I, it's no, it's, it's really quite an accomplishment just, just being, being on the air for that long and having mm-hmm. a successful show and, and being a part of it. And it's just, uh, I look forward to season 20. Thank you. Yeah. It's our, it's a big <laughs> anniversary season coming up. I have to say we are all, we're in the throes of prep for it. I actually came here from, uh, an epic five hour wardrobe fitting, um, which sounds really glamorous, but I assure you is not. And we're, we're getting ready. So um, I can't wait to see how it unfolds. It's going to be a, a big one, a different one than we've ever made before. Amazing. Can't wait. Let's, um, let's take a little break and we will come back. We will play my speed round game, talk some industry news and my solo dining experience. And the final question, stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Chaba Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. The area is well-known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN's series Hardcore. There is something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. The second season of Hardcore is out now. You can learn all about apples and fermentation and dive into how cider makers and their communities are working to create an equitable industry and one that is resilient to climate change. Listen to Hardcore on your favorite podcast app. HRN is home to transformative exchanges about food. We hope our diverse lineup of shows, 
opens your eyes, educates, and empowers. Thanks to HRN, I ventured into the world of cooking with sumac, and I have not looked back since. I was listening to a taste of the past with my mom, and there was an episode about the history of American food. It inspired me to make it the subject of my final social studies project, and I ended up getting an A. Join us during our summer membership drive by donating and becoming a member. Members play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate to become a member today. We thank you for your support. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Gail Simmons. She's a culinary expert food writer, cookbook author, and TV personality. She's a permanent judge on Bravo's Top Chef and the co-host of The Good Dish, which we didn't even get to. Oh, yeah. I have another show. You have another <laughs> show. Before the speed round, tell us a little about your other show. Um, the Good Dish is, was a great, it's a great experience. I mean, it was a daytime talk show that came very much sort of, I mean, I worked on it in some ways for two years, but then it actually getting you know, on the air happened very, very quickly um, at the end of 2021, and we were on the air in, from January. Um, our first season just ended at the end of May, um, and it's totally different from Top Chef. It's a daytime syndicated talk show really about what's for dinner tonight, making dinner for your family, getting back in the kitchen, the tips and tricks that you need as um, a person just like feeding yourself, feeding your family, having fun in the kitchen as a home cook. It's um, co-hosted with me along with Daphne Oz and Jamika Pessoa, who are two great friends and cooks who I really admire. And we just had a blast. I mean, we just cooked every day together, cooked our hearts out, laughed and giggled. And it was a side of me I was really um, able to show that is very different than what I do on Top Chef, which is kind of very serious and very fancy and fine dining. This was like a little more... In a way, the everyday me that is feeding my kids and getting home at 6 p.m. and not knowing what's in the fridge and what can I make and how do I make it great and how do I up my home cooking game. And it really did make me a better cook. I loved being able to just cook every day on television and make delicious food with friends. Awesome. We'll skip my work-life balance question. <laughs> you know, there is some balance. It sounds like a lot, but really what's been great about I don't having know how you do it all. different That's shows, I mean, no one knows how anyone does it. We all have yeah. stuff. But they shoot at totally different times of the year. The thing about Top Chef is it really only shoots for like eight to ten weeks once a year. And that does leave like 42 other weeks of the year to be doing other things. Right, right. So it just is about scheduling. Yeah, yeah. You know, figuring it out and scheduling. Yeah. You, and you've, you're doing that. One so. day at a time. No one's perfect. Tip for the future if I haven't used that one before. <laughs> I don't think I have. Okay, speed round, speed round. Yeah, do it. <laughs> um, I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Chocolate. Fabulous. You're going to be great. Dark, 80% or higher. Ah. Oh. I love a first after I play this game so many times. <laughs> there you go. It always, there's always first. Too. Right, I'm it's sure. amazing. I'm glad. It's That's amazing. the best part of it. Okay. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant? Oh, 50 50. I need both. Indoor dining or al fresco dining? Al fresco when it's above uh, 60 degrees. <laughs> Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Cocktail into wine. Love it. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? 
Depends on who my dining partner is. Oh, interesting. A little of both. Interesting. I Small don't, plates for the appetizer first. and a big plate for myself at the yeah. end. How about communal table or chef's counter? Oh, I'd say communal table. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? All-inclusive is if it, and even more bonus points if it includes health care for the staff. Writing books or hosting TV shows? <laughs> that includes being a judge. I will say well, hosting TV yes. shows. I think from a, from, a, from a value, time value proposition, for me, hosting TV shows. Yeah. Not for yeah. everyone. Yeah, you're good at it. I mean, I don't know. Uh, another time we'll have to get like, I mean, what's... Books are like giving birth and I have two kids and two books and I, it's really hard. Okay. <laughs> I love them. I love them all okay. equally, differently. Really I, hard. I hear all you. All of it. It's like parenting, writing books. <laughs> okay, I got three more. New York bagels or Montreal style? Not Montreal style, Montreal bagels. 100%. That's my homeland. That's my people. Those are my bagels. Very different, but I have to be loyal. Love it. Cheese plate or dessert? Hmm. A little cheese and then something like a piece of dark chocolate. <laughs> after, I'm not good at making decisions. Mon- after your Montreal bagel. That's right. Of course. Okay. Um, Manhattan or Brooklyn? Hmm. Brooklyn. Right now, I'm very devoted. I've lived in Brooklyn for nine years. And... It's just, it's where I finally feel like I'm home. I thought you were going to go with Brooklyn because, yeah. Because here we are. Because here we are. But yeah, that's awesome. You're great at the game. And a lot, I think there were a bunch of firsts in there. Oh, good. Great. (laughs) I'm glad I didn't bore you. Not like that's, not like that's what I'm looking for. No, but but, it's not for you. But I find it so interesting when I hear when somebody, yeah, yeah. A new, a new rendition of, of an answer. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for industry news, I just picked out an article that was in Condé Nast Traveler entitled, The World's Best Restaurants, Which Restaurants Are Among the 50 Best? The the 2022 iteration, so Mm -hmm. weird sometimes to look at words, iteration, I'm like looking at that. I have that all the time. I'm like, okay, iteration of, thank you, of the world's 50 best restaurants, one of the most prestigious awards on the planet, will be announced on July 18th, 2022, with the award ceremony in London. And here's what we know, and this was by Sarah James. So this this is the 20th birthday, they're hmm. saying, of this list, which had started in London. So they're doing this big awards thing back in London. And what they do um, before they announce the 50 best is they announce the 51 to 100. Yes. Um, so that's the list that just came out. And I guess it provides a bit of insight as to who may be on the top 50. And it also like celebrates those restaurants. So I mean, I'm I I like, you know, celebrating restaurants. So I'm, I'm all for, you know, this, or, you know, like, but it's, um, uh, you know, I don't know. Lists can be a bit controversial they, too. They can. <laughs> yes, these days especially. Yeah, I don't know what. Yeah, what's your take? And, um, you know, I I appreciate this list, and I know that the chefs and restaurants that work so hard at what they do to strive to be on this list, it's really important to them. And I do think giving credit at this level is valuable uh, and appreciated. I I I actually worked as a. I don't know if I'm. A, I was a judge on this list of this list 
for a long time, but I'm not anymore. Um, and so I, I really respect it. And I do think that the team behind it works really hard to be as fair um, and global as they can. Um, you know, ranking in general is can be problematic, I think, because it's like, well, according to whom? And often we forget to ask that question. Um, and it's it's hard to really make sure that it is completely democratic a process any any list anywhere because it's obviously yeah. coming from a small group of people um so that's where things get difficult but i will say what it you know do i as a consumer think so much that it's like number two or number seven no i just any one any of the hundred restaurants on that list are an extraordinary experience and there's so many more, obviously, than just them. Uh, so, you know, it's always a curious and interesting thing. And I love when there's newcomers and I love when there's underdogs and I love when there's, you know, restaurants that are unexpected um, because it just means people are getting out and traveling more and exploring more. And I do think that the list is changing and and being more, it has becoming more relevant and more diverse than it used to be. And those are all really good things. I, I do think lists like this although they're mostly fine dining so it means that they have to cater to a very affluent crowd and most people can't afford to eat at 80 percent probably of the restaurants on this list so that's where the issue is um but i do think in a lot of ways just the existence of lists like this pushes the industry forward in some ways that i think is is a good thing it's a goal it's something to strive for um, you know, it is, I think sometimes too weighted, you know, what does it really mean? And does it, should it define you as a restaurant, as a business, if your seats are full and your guests are happy, which is more important. Uh, but it, it pushes people and, and when you get pushed and challenged, there's innovation and that's where innovation comes from, right? And if you look at the history of the list, you know, chefs like, you know, Rennie Redzepi at Noma, who's obviously been on the list for a long, long time, and Il Bui, which was on the list as the number one for so many years. You know, those are where real innovation happens. Those are the restaurants that are really moving the needle in so many ways at a level that you can't afford to otherwise. Um, and I do think there's something to be said for that. That's really interesting. And they do, they do create change, you know, and I do think that many of them because they understand that responsibility they have, um, understand the power and, and that with responsibility comes, or with great, what's with great power comes great responsibility. And they yeah. often, you know, chefs like Rennie or, you know, others are also striving to change other elements of the industry and make them more equitable and inclusive. And that's important too. So it's just about making sure that there's levels and, and, um, and recognition of those things as well. Yes. Oh, very well said. Yeah. <laughs> that was a lot, but you know. No, but it was. And I mean, I'll just uh, shout out to a couple places on the list that I've I've been to solo to segue into my solo mm-hmm. experience. Let's see, I've been to Mani in Sao Paulo in mm-hmm. Brazil, number 96. Burnt Ends in Singapore is number mm-hmm. 94. Mm-hmm. Estella here in New York City, 79. Um Rosetta in Mexico City, Mexico, and Dom in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Number well, Rosetta sixty, and Dom is fifty three. I guess I'm going backwards here, but um, okay. yeah, yeah, all good. good. Yeah, there's um, a lot of good ones. You know, and in general, they're just a great list to have 
for wherever you go in the world. And um, often if you can't get into them, they can recommend other great restaurants. And that's like a good travel tip. Like I might not be able to get a table at Dom, but I bet if I call them and ask, well, where would you recommend? Whoever answers the phone will give you five other amazing restaurants nearby. Yeah, that's a great tip. And going solo, I have to say, helps get yes. reservations oh at these God. You places. Can saddle up to the bar. Yeah, which is I which is why I've scored seats at a lot of very hard to get to restaurants because I just show up by myself. Um, I'm in. I would say I'd come with you, but then we'd never get a seat. <laughs> well, we could go separately yeah. and together at the, the same time. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> okay, so for my solo dining experience this week, I'm doing a flashback. It's at Joe Beef. Oh. Going way I love that. Going way Those back. Are my boys. Going way back to 2012. So let's see how my, my mm-hmm. memory does on this. <laughs> the location, 2491 Rue Notre-Dame West. 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 It mm-hmm. is pronounced West. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Montreal, Canada. The concept, old French classic in the heart of Little Burgundy, an homage to Charles Joe Beef Mc. McKernan, a 19th century innkeeper and Montreal working class hero. The owners, Frederick Marin and Allison Cunningham, who were formerly partnered with Chef David McMillan. So why did I go? Well, I had been on this solo trip back in 2012, and I was ready to indulge. My experience. So um, I had a kind of latish reservation, and um, I remember walking in. It was pretty happening. It's a happening place. It is. And um, I was sat. They have a really fabulous chef's counter, um, and there were a lot of other solo diners there. And I ended up befriending the woman sitting next to me. Her name was Jen, and she has a, a, a website called Tiny Urban Kitchen. And I, she had this very fancy camera. And this is back again many yeah. years ago before I saw as many fancy cameras and restaurants. Now, yeah. And because she was taking like serious food pictures. And so we, we became friends. Cool. <laughs> I love that. We became friends instantly. And, um, and she was from Boston just vi- on business visiting. And, um, so, and she, she, she wrote about her experience on her website. I just went back and looked it up and she started out saying how she hated solo dining too. So, um, but this is a great spot for solo dining really with, um, especially with, if you get a seat at the chef's counter, um, they have a chalkboard menu I ordered, um, and I had a really nice time. So what did I get? So I had to try this this dish called the foie gras double down, mm-hmm. which is, <laughs> you had this you, before? I have had it. You really went for it, but I shared it with someone. It's a, it's a, it's I don't, I did not finish it. And I have to say after this entire mm-hmm. trip to Montreal, I remember getting back to New York and feeling I had to eat vegetables and salads. Yes. <laughs> they come from the school of <laughs> overindulgence, but yeah. you know, they've actually, as they've aged Fred and, and, David, who's no longer there, uh, a partner there, they have calmed down a little bit, but they used to just annihilate everyone who walked in that door. That's, that's, yes, that's what it's no, had been known for and um, its reputation. And but it's I, so delicious. So delicious. I So this, this dish is crispy bacon, crispy sharp cheddar cheese, homemade aioli stuffed between two three-ounce slabs of chicken fried foie gras and drizzled in maple syrup to light nice light snack a little a little snack Mm -hmm. (laughs) um my take it was delicious um 
I mean, foie gras, it's like foie gras, I don't eat that much, but it's because it's so rich. Yes. Um, but, it, I mean, it was, I remember the combo really worked and it being, uh, I mean, just, just a feat, like I was treating myself. I was treating myself. Yes. Um, there was a guy at the, at the other end of the counter who had their Cheval, which is horse filet mignon. He was very much enjoying it. I did not have that, but that is another dish they have there yes, that's very, it's very unique. Quebecois. So uh, my take, uh, that was my take. Um, did you know that Quebec is one of the biggest uh, suppliers of foie gras in well North America for sure, if not the world? Um, mm-hmm. Now it's a I lot know. of geese. Now I know. <laughs> I don't know if I knew that before, but that's a good fun fact. I like it. Lots of geese and duck in Quebec. <laughs> So uh, the ambiance, it's uh, it's dark. It's with candle lighting. It's got it's got this great vibe. It's just a happening place, is all I have to say. Uh, it's perfect for solo dining or dinner with friends. Interesting tidbit: Joe Beef became more well known after Anthony Bourdain visited it on his show, The Layover, in 2011. Uh, personal fun fact: um, so the next day, with my friend Jen, we went to we decided to meet for lunch. So we went to Schwartz's Smoked Meats. Best. We, we shared we shared a medium and a fatty sandwich, um, and I remember we both commented the, the fatty. I mean, we both preferred the fatty, but it was we figured we should try them both. Um, uh, some other places I went: Beauty's Luncheonette, Saint Viator Bagel, Saint Viator. Mm-hmm. Thank you, and up a pied de cochon. Au pied de cochon. Thank you. Pig's foot. Maybe I will still. Um, study French at some well, point. Well, no, that's it. That's hard. <laughs> you know, Au Pied de Cochon was the original. It's kind yeah. of like Joe Beef is a disciple in a way of Au Pied de Cochon, which, you know, um, was the kind yeah. of real Quebecois, like gastro um, experience of yeah. its kind, of this sort of over the top, lots of foie gras and lobster, but incredible quality food in Quebec. And it's it's still amazing. He now owns Maple Sugar Shacks in. Um, uh, just outside of Montreal that are incredible eating experiences too. I remember seeing that and I didn't make it, but next time I get up there, I really like yeah. Montreal. Oh, it's like, incredible. It was a, You're due for a visit if 2012 was your last time I am time totally there. due. So the cost of, of this this dish I got was 29 They also offer a half. See, I don't, see, I, my memory is not that great. I might have just had the half. But anyways, I had it and it was... It was quite something, mm-hmm. and that was memorable. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, I would go back, and their website is joebeef.ca, and their Instagram is at joebeef. Okay, so before I ask you to ask a question to my next guest, I have to go back and ask my question to you from my last guest, because I go... Yeah, right, everyone I gets go show to show, and I, I that. skip that. So on... On episode 326, I had on Susan Barr, who's a chef, restaurateur, and social advocate based in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, who's a new book, My Aki Tree, A Chef's Memoir of Finding Home in the Kitchen. She's from Toronto. Cool. And she she formerly worked at um, True Diner and Saturday Dinette, if that I don't know them, but that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't mean anything. Okay. I'll look them up. Well, anyways, I like that we had this Canada connection here. Okay, so her question is, as a change maker in the industry who's been in the U.S. for a while and has had incredible success for an up-and-coming cook, chef, writer, journalist, 
coming from perhaps a smaller city, what is the path that they should begin to lay for themselves? How can they begin to lay the fundamental bricks down to build their pathway towards what they love to do within the industry and sustain it in some viable way? Hmm. Big, big question. This is, she's a, she's, yeah. Yeah, I like it. (laughs) I like it. It's a big question and I don't necessarily have all the answers, but I can tell you what I believe, which is that um, never try to emulate someone else's career um you know that i hear so all the time that i want to be the next so and so and i understand what that means like people aren't literally wanting to be that person necessarily but they are but that's their inspiration um and i like that but i also feel like that limits you when you put your head in that space um to what only that person did and i think part of the reason i've had a modicum of success in what I did is because I try not to compare myself to anyone, which is not easy in the world we live in. That's not to say I don't aspire and 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 am and, and, and am inspired by people, for sure. And I've had great mentors, but also, um, as we sort of touched on earlier, Sherry, I I've I've just been open to walking through the doors to the right or to the left of me instead of just being single mindedly focused on what's in front of me. And I think that has been really helpful. So, you know, never poo-pooing an opportunity, not, you know, not necessarily have to say yes to everything, but keeping in mind that the world is always bigger than you realize it to be. And there's always more and other ways and other perspectives to doing things. And the more education you have, the more you immerse yourself in other people, in other experiences, the more you will add sort of like ammunition to or to your arsenal. That's sort of a bad simile. That's very violent sounding. <laughs> but, you it's, know, you referenced no, the layers fine. before. And I would say I always imagine them more as like rungs on a ladder. And I don't necessarily know exactly where the ladder leads. And that's sort of the fun of it. Because if you have in your mind exactly how you want it to turn out, it's never going to turn out that way. And then you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. But... It's always going to lead somewhere fantastic if you allow it to and if you really take advantage of all the opportunities around you, regardless of if they seem really relevant in the moment or not. Um, So I think it's about learning from everyone you can, finding people you trust, mentors who inspire you and learning from them and then, you know, really not being afraid to do things your own way. Um, But also a big lesson, especially at the beginning, is to keep your mouth shut except for when you're eating things. You know, listen more than you talk, uh, which is hard to do sometimes. It was a great question, a really great answer. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you. Susan was her name? Suzanne. Suzanne. Thank you, Suzanne. Yeah, Suzanne Barr. Um, Toronto Connection. Cool. (laughs) Yeah, we're good people. You certainly are. Okay, so now for your final question, I'm going to ask you to ask a question to my next guest, and that is Dan Richer. He is the chef and owner of Jersey City's Raza Pizza, featuring wood-fired pizza, and it received three stars in the New York Times in 2017, and he has a new book out called The Joy of Pizza, Everything You Need to Know, co-authored with Katie Parla, and I've been out there, actually I've been out there once solo, mm-hmm. and it fant- was fantastic, it is fantastic, and I now have the opportunity to go back there and interview him, 
in person at Raza and ask him your question. So <laughs> I'm so excited and honored. Um, I love Dan. I know Dan. I've met Dan. I've eaten his pizza. Uh, I love his book. I'm a proud owner of his book. Um, and uh, he's fantastic. He's so cool. His pizza is epically good. And so much more than just pizza. I mean, I think he has a new spot as well. Um, I think he, ex- what he's told me is he's, he's renovated or expanded. Okay, or- cool. And it's different than when I was there. Me. Right. Because it wasn't for me. It wasn't 2012, but it wasn't like yesterday. Right. <laughs> I mean, I ate, I ate his pizza during the pandemic. I went there, picked it up uh, because it was before restaurants were back open. Um, I went in with a mask and like got a little tour of it with from him. But before, when they were still only outdoor, when there was no indoor mm. seating still. So this was like, you know, yeah. pre-vaccines. I remember. Um, <laughs> and we all do, like trauma forever. But he, uh, and then I, you know, he gave me like 15 pizzas to take home with me. And we <sighs> ate every crumb. Um, so my question for him, that is so good. And I kind of, I, I knew this was coming and I still didn't completely prepare I guess that, like, this is something that's interesting to me because in my life, no two things are alike. You know, no two days are alike. And I do a whole bunch of things all the time. And I'm constantly moving in 15 directions, which isn't always advisable. Um, Kind of, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. And he's quite the opposite. I mean, he works with, like, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit but you know three ingredients every day all day like water flour yeast um and how does he stay inspired and um and how did he how did that happen that he found this one thing that has defined his career so completely I mean not to say he isn't able to do a million other things because I know other things he's cooked and I've had other things he's cooked um but it really is amazing to me how much success he's had in a world of like pizza overload he has shot above the rest um and how do you do that in such a saturated market but more than anything how do you stay engaged and and challenged to make it better each time you go to make that pizza because he's done it in a way that you know so many people aspire to and there are like pizzas are a dime a dozen in the tri-state area i'm not to say there not to say there aren't a lot of really good ones either but he is almost like surpassed them all. Yeah. In Jersey City, which is exciting. And I'm, oh, I'm proud of him for doing that. Yes. No, it's incredible. I will ask him. I can't wait to chat with him and to have his pizza again. <laughs> I can't wait to hear his answer. So I'll be listening. <gasps> cool. Thank you so much. You, uh, I appreciate you in oh. general. I appreciate knowing you all these years. Thank you, Sherry. Through Ditto. the industry and um, watching your career as it's, as you've gone up the ladders, mm. ladder steps. Right. And um, you inspire me. You inspire so many people. Um, just keep keep doing whatever you're doing. And um, thank you. I really, um, I wish you the best. Thank you. Same. Thanks for having me. It's always a joy talking to you. My pleasure. And now we, we you, all of us can have pizza here at Roberta's Yes, too, also exceptional also pizza. Also fabulous. Yes. Very lucky. Um, so thank you. Thank you. My guest today has been Gail Simmons. She's a culinary expert, food writer, cookbook author, and TV personality, and permanent judge on Bravo's Top Chef and co-host of The Good Dish. Check out her website at gailsimmons.com, 
And you can follow her on Instagram at Gail Simmons Eats and on Twitter at Gail Simmons. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Matt. Thanks again to Gail. I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bayer. So next week, my show is going to be my on my special on the road show from the James Beard Awards in Chicago and the Food and Wine Classic in Aspen. So stay tuned for that. And then I will be back with Dan Richer on Wednesday, August 10th. There's a couple, there's a little break in there, but um, that's what's coming up. So I hope you'll tune in then. Stay safe and well. And thank you as always for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.